Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted December 16, 2016, we talk with British journalist and political blogger Jonathan Stubbs about signs of mainstream European leaders starting to sing the same tune as the Trump and Brexit campaigns. We'll also point out top features in the WPJ Fall issue. Cover theme, History's Ghosts. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, the highest profile job in the Trump White House will go to Rex Tillerson, the CEO of ExxonMobil, the oil giant. He is Trump's choice for Secretary of State. Tillerson may have a bumpy confirmation hearing, though, for two reasons, and both have to do with Russia. He has long done business with Vladimir Putin, a matter of concern in and of itself. He has also called for sanctions against Russia to be lifted. But Tillerson's nomination also comes up amid reports that the CIA now says that Putin personally signed off on Russian efforts to manipulate the U.S. election and help Trump win. But the Russians and Trump say this is all nonsense, but South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, an influential Republican, says Tillerson's nomination will go nowhere unless he admits that, yes, Putin was behind the cyber attack. The president-elect scheduled a news conference this week only to cancel it. He would have been pressed on all of this, among other things. Meantime, conflicting signals about just what Trump may do in the Middle East. You'll recall he ran a campaign that stressed getting tough on Iran. Yet Trump has also spoken of working with Syria's Bashar al-Assad to take down the Islamic State. The contradiction, and it's a big one, Syria happens to be Iran's best friend in the Middle East, so working with Syria would seem to help Iran. Numerous other questions abound about just what Trump really intends to do in the Middle East and elsewhere. He takes over on January 20th. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. It is now my duty to convince the whole country that our project is the only one that can carry us forward for jobs, growth, justice, to beat these fanatics who declared war. And as it is my duty to restore the confidence of the French people. As with Brexit in Great Britain and Donald Trump in the United States, it was an unpredicted outcome late last month when former French Prime Minister François Fillon won the presidential nomination of his center-right Republican Party. And as with those other stunning upsets, there were strong anti-immigrant, anti-Islam, anti-government sentiments, including Fillon's promise to cut half a million jobs and a billion euros from the federal budget. With the French left faltering, Fillon's main opponent in the spring election may well be Marine Le Pen of the even more right-wing National Front, newly energized by Trump's victory. And it seems to be Le Pen's supporters that Fillon may be trying hardest to convince. 
It was yet another example of what British journalist and political blogger Jonathan Stubbs calls mainstream European leaders starting to sing the same tune as the Trump and Brexit campaigns. Stubbs wrote about it for the World Policy blog in a post headline, Mainstream Politicians Flocking to the Trump-Brexit Tune. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Jonathan Stubbs, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Who are some of the other major European leaders now playing to widespread feelings of economic frustration, fears of immigration, anger and isolation by establishment elites? And when will the elections they are contesting be held? Yes, and um, uh, you mentioned Francis uh, Filon and the French elections next year, but Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, Francis' ex-president and one of the other candidates, was also guilty, in my view, of um, trying to tap into the right's populist fervor. Um, for instance, during the campaign, he proposed a ban on Muslim headscarves being worn in universities and public companies. He also wanted to limit French nationality rights of children born of foreign parents and insisted that children who don't eat pork should lose their special school dinner options and instead eat chips. Um, despite his unvaliant efforts, however, Sarkozy lost as he was still viewed as an establishment candidate. Um, we've also seen recently um, Francois Hollande has just announced that he will not seek another term and is the first sitting French president not to seek re-election since the Second World War. His announcement leaves a vacuum of left and centre-left uh, candidates, um, with perhaps only the rising star, Emmanuel um, Macron, being the only viable candidate to challenge Fillon and Le Pen. Um, and of course, as well as France next spring, uh, there's two other important elections in Europe uh, taking place this weekend um, in Austria, Norbert Hofer of the Freedom Party, founded in the 1950s by ex-Nazis and with an association of anti-Semitism, is hoping to be the first far-right head of state in Europe since 1945. Uh, the election there is too close, too close to call. In, in a bigger election on Sundays in Italy, with uh, Prime Minister Matteo Renzi's uh, referendum on constitutional reform, um, the voters turned into a vote on Renzi's government since he announced he would resign if he lost. And the populist surge here is Beppe Grillo's five-star movement, now officially the opposition party with 30% of the national vote. Um, polls indicate that Renzi is heading for defeat. Um, five-star claims to represent the right and the left and rails against immigration, big business and corruption in public life. They also want to vote on Italy leaving the euro, which would cause a financial meltdown of Italy's banks and a huge crisis in Europe. Um, Gerd Wilders of the Dutch Party for Freedom will contest elections in Holland next March and in latest polling is ahead of Prime Minister Mark Rutte's ruling party. Wilders rails against immigration, Muslims and Islam and wants the Netherlands to leave the EU. He has also faced prosecution for citing racial hatred. Beyond these individual countries, you see the future of the EU and European security at large in the balance. Talk about the price Europe may pay for a return to the freedom of the greater nationalism and national independence. But of course, these, these rises of populist groups in Europe does, does in my view, kind of um, look to destabilize Europe, as I said in my piece. Um, of course, when we think about the history of Europe, we think of hundreds of years of conflict and war um, where strong independent nation states uh, in direct competition with each other and in close proximity with, with cultural barriers. Um, 
resulted in this continuous conflict where I, I don't think there was virtually a single generation in 400 years that didn't experience or have some experience of war whether large scale or smaller conflicts um, so, so I think that this kind of return to nationalism and, and strong nation states is a, is, a, is a really bad mistake because you know we, we always seem to say that Oh, we're more informed now, and it's different now, and it, it won't happen again. But of course, every single generation throughout that period must have thought the same thing, and they were wrong then. And I think we're really foolish to believe that, you know, we're right now. What some fear most is that Trump Brexit tide sweeping away the stability of Germany under Angela Merkel, like her or not. What's your view? Yeah, I think I think despite of the rise of of, of the um, alternative for Deutschland uh, party of the right-wing alternative for Dustin Party, and the criticism Merkel received for a generous immigration and asylum policies. I think Germany is probably the most stable and advanced major country, not just in Europe, but probably in the Western Hemisphere. Um, I think she'll, she'll be comfortably re-elected in, in German election, elections late next year. Um, and I think Barack Obama was right and, and correct during his recent European visit to pass on the baton of the Western world's progressive, liberal, and tolerant um, cause onto her. Um, I, I also think that when you compare Britain and Germany, um, you see young industrial workers interviewed in interviewed and they're still very much pro-European and extol the values of the European ideal and the social model. Um, they seem acutely aware of their history and the history of Europe. They are, when they talk, in the sense that they're proud to be German, but also consider themselves proud Europeans and having no sense of their cultural and national identities. In contrast, in Britain, in fact, these workers rail against the EU, against perceived political incorrectness and invasive health and safety regulations designed to protect their welfare and keep them safe at work. Um, I, I also think that it's ironic in the, the French um, elections that Francois Fillon's um, has been deemed a Thatcherite, um, as it was Margaret Thatcher's free market reforms that were responsible for decimating Britain's industrial heartlands, leaving, as in Rust Belt America, depressed and deprived areas that ultimately, in my view, decades later contributed to the Brexit vote. Germany, around the same time, in contrast, rather than closing the factories and their industries, invested in them. They invested in automation. They put workers on their boards rather than on the streets, giving them a stake and a say in their own futures. The result was greatly improved productivity from a happy and content and invested workforce. German industry and car makers since are thriving, powering Germany's strong economy forward, while Britain is dealing with the consequences of a colossal trade imbalance and huge national and personal debt. Germany subsequently has secured well-paid jobs, while Britain has secured low-paid jobs and a mushrooming of zero-hours contracts. Uh, this, for me, indicates that the off-sighted conservative idol of Britain being a proud nation of shopkeepers is just that, a fantasy. In America, we see you having the same debate. You've had millions of deprived Rust Belt people voting for a billionaire property magnate who doesn't even care enough about his workers to pay them and use his cheap and ported Chinese steel in the construction of his hotels. So for me, the answer from this history, from where it's led us, is not less government and more free marketeerism. It's government that invest in the nation's future. Government that invest to increase opportunity for all. With all the benefits of increased skills and education that brings, governments that intervene were necessary in markets that have become corrupt and corrosive to the society they serve. 
and have subsequently increased inequality and economic and political disenfranchisement. Um, and an, an example where the EU kind of goes against this grain is that they want to um, impose a Robin Hood tax on all the financial institutions that contributed to the 2008 financial crisis, and this was blocked by the Conservative government. Um, I, th I think all hope is not lost in that Francois Fillon took umbrage of being described as a new Thatcher, so, so there is still hope on that score. There was considerable embarrassment when the Brexit-boosting UK Independence Party of Nigel Farage, a, a recent Trump guest, was revealed to have behind-the-scenes liaison with far-right groups across Europe. Uh, now you see such links as legitimized. Yes, I think um, all of these kind of groups uh, uh, kind of operate under the guise of freedom and liberation. Um, Farage, through the European Parliament, had links with Italy's Northern League, who considered the Norwegian mass murderer and Anders Brevik to have some good ideas. Downing Street, in, in courting the right-wing government of the Visegrad group, who are strongly supported by Moscow, legitimises these right-wing views in order to build alliances in, in undermining the EU. Um, this included holding a reception for the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who during his country's recent referendum on immigration spread false and inaccurate stories, scare stories. Just as we saw in Brexit, that led one elderly Holocaust survivor, Zuzana Vajna, 79, reported in The Guardian to describe how the stigmatization of refugees and government propaganda during the campaign reminded her of the incitement against Jews during her childhood where she was forced to walk up and down the Danube while Hungarian Nazis shot the Jews into the river. She thought the fervor whipped up was very dangerous because it could contaminate all of Europe. Nigel Farage, in, in contrast in Britain, now feels bold enough to call Barack Obama on BBC National Radio a creature, thus reinforcing the right propensity to stigmatize anyone who doesn't agree with them as another. Uh, the government, the British government, through its actions during the Brexit campaign, its subsequent real politics, foreign policy, and its refusal to condemn right-wing attacks on three high court judges, in my view, cannot claim to be exempt from responsibility for this. One recent academic study of opinion polls across Europe shows a congruent decline in commitment to democracy itself. How does that strike you? Uh, alarming. Um, we saw during Brexit and Trump's election campaign constant attacks on the, on the mainstream media for reporting the facts. This seems to be a running theme of the autocratic nature of the right, be it in Russia, Britain or America. I never thought I'd hear myself say that, in that it tries to shut down debate and prevent a fact-based reality being conveyed to the people. The use of the internet and social media to convey fake news, misinformation and mistruths is symptomatic of that and undermining of democracy. Journalism was always founded, in my view, on integrity, but now it seems that that's not the case, in that it's seen as merely a tool to propagate a cause, to promote a cause. During the Arab Spring, the internet was seen as, a vital, as vital in exposing tyranny, and now it's being used to support it. How the populist promises and actual plans of Donald Trump will affect the U.S. economy and the lives of his voters is still a subject of speculation. But the initial impact of a rising nationalist trend that drove Brexit is alarmingly clear in the U.K., you note. The value of the pound has fallen by 20%. Uh, inflation has already increased significantly. 
while business confidence has seen a sharp decline with 65 billion pounds, $80 billion in investment scrap. What more is in store? Britain's national debt is now going to grow to just under £2 trillion in 2021 at over 90% of GDP. Britain, of course, hasn't even begun negotiating to leave the EU, never mind actually leave, which is projected to be sometime in 2019. So the forecast as a result could be extremely optimistic. You also report that British Prime Minister Theresa May has neglected to ease the social tensions and threats of violence that followed the Brexit vote. Bring us up to date on that. Yes, um, since the referendum, um, we've seen a 40% increase in racial and religious hate crime, according to figures released by the Home Office. Um, of that percentage, 79% were motivated by race hate. Um, the number of incidents not reported to the police is also thought to be much greater. Um, in reaction, UKIP called the figures a publicity machine and suggested that they did not actually mean more crime, just increases in oversensitivity. Talk a little bit more about the distinction you see between an appropriate sense of national identity and the more virulent nationalism you see being unleashed. Our calls to make America great again, or France, or Britain, Austria, the Netherlands, inherently destabilizing? Um, I would say that though a lot of the grievances inherent in the rise of populism are real, but overall I would say so, yes, um, because it's this perceived loss of cultural and national identity that is exploited and exacerbated by more nationalistic elements. Demagogues like Trump, Farage, Le Pen and Wilders fan the flames of discontent and point the finger at others. <clears throat> it is always someone else's fault and never their own. It is a stab in the back theory that is used to get them to power and used again whilst in power to deflect attention from their failures. Um, this is inherently destabilizing politically because, as we've seen in history, a scapegoat and other always has to be found for nationalism to, to maintain its hold on the nation. Um, and as I said, while the grievances of followers of populism are real, the economic grievances, their anger is directed at the wrong place and at the wrong people, which is very damaging to social cohesion and for democracy in general. Um, I also think the problems of Britain's imbalanced economy and huge national debt are not the fault of the EU. They, they are the fault of failed national ideological policy going back decades, as, as I mentioned to um, Margaret Thatcher's policies in the 70s and 80s. Um, and neither will these problems disappear when Britain leaves the EU. In fact, they will worsen as Britain's national debt, as I said, projected to rise to just under £2 trillion, uh, indicates that there of this great uncertainty and we haven't even left. Um, in the EU, countries with similar levels of national debt are often cited by conservative Brexiteers as prime examples of how an undemocratic authoritarian EU has failed, whereas in Britain is entirely self-inflicted. Um, we see within all the rising populist and nationalist tides in Britain, America and Europe that there is this kind of uh, exploitation of aspects of sovereignty and national identity. Um, and then in Britain, of course, that we've seen the Brexit campaign that though, though it was about immigration, it wasn't all about immigration, it was about national sovereignty, and now national sovereignty is being bypassed or attempted to be bypassed by the British government. So I think a lot of the, the perceived um, grievances are not real and they're just exaggerated and fanned and hyped, um, as I say, by these right-wing demagogues. Beyond that, do you think anti-trade, anti-globalism will continue to make sense uh, to the frustrated and isolated 
when jobs are no longer being stolen away by poorer countries, but by automation, even in their own hometowns, maybe, but with only skeleton crews of workers actually employed? Yes, um, as, as I say, these, these grievances are real, but the key here for me is education. Um, in my view, we have to invest in new technologies and the skills required to develop and work with them. Um, when you think about globalization, it's trading with less developed economies who are trying to catch up. So you're always going to have cheaper foreign workforces and companies tempted to relocate to different countries in order to maximize profits. That's the accepted downside of the opening up of huge markets to buy our products. You can't have one without the other. Tax incentives like Trump's carrier deal are not going to work long term. The key for me is to ensure our Western economies stay ahead through the introduction of new technologies and skilled workforces. That's where the well-paid, secure jobs are. And to do this, we have to invest in top-quality education for the many instead of the few. And this, in my view, requires increased taxation. If people refuse to do this and see the greater good, then as other countries catch up through globalization, then our economies will shrink as they are caught and surpassed, and people will then want to maintain their lifestyles with ever-decreasing state resources that will inevitably result in even greater inequality and the hugely damaging consequences to our societies and political systems that this entails. We also have to stop the huge tax avoidance of companies making huge profits out of the expenditure of their native workforces. This also requires a political will, I would say, of tackling the vested interest aimed at skewing the political process that should never veer from the interest of the whole nation. When you look at the real solutions needed for the problems of globalization and the political will needed to implement them, our current political systems do not fill me with optimism. Finally, you see some irony in the symbolism of what the British call Remembrance Day and the ability to apply lessons it should still teach. Say more about that and the need for solid, stabilizing narrative, actually storytelling, uh, for a world that's already drowning in communication. Yes, I, th I thought um, during the Remembrance Day um, commemorations that it was very ironic that whilst the country is herded towards solemn reflection and the blanket news coverage of dignitaries placing wreaths at an empty tomb and the, and the stigmatization of the right of anybody who does not wear a poppy, the government, at the behest of the right, is working to dismantle and undermine the very institutions built up through deeds, not words, to provide a permanent remembrance to those fallen in the centuries of conflict. Institutions built to promote and protect human rights, international law, and peace and security and cooperation. These are the very institutions that are now a threat of being dismantled. Um, in my view, we have to put aside political gain and self-interest and start telling the nation the truth, the truth about ourselves, about our history, and about Europe. And to me, this doesn't make us unpatriotic. All people who want to put, the, put our country down, it just makes us honest. If you fail to properly recognize the present and the past, how can you possibly predict the future and your nation's best course in it? Um, so for me, that's why I said in the piece that we have to be better storytellers. Jonathan Stubbs, thank you. Thanks for having me. Jonathan Stubbs is an independent journalist and founder-writer of the political blog Britain2100.com. 
His recent World Policy blog post is headlined, Mainstream Politicians Flocking to the Trump Brexit Tune. Shortly after we spoke, the Italian referendum on constitutional reform to make government more efficient was turned down by a populist majority. That led Premier Matteo Renzi to resign as promised and raised fears of a contagious banking crisis, perhaps even a new anti-EU government that might follow Britain out the door. Days later, Chancellor Angela Merkel, launching her campaign for a fourth term, acknowledged growing far-right forces with her own criticism of full-face veils for Muslim women and the idea of Sharia law replacing German justice. But a presidential vote in Austria went the other way, a green win over the far-right Freedom Party, and the euro began to rise from a recent 21-month low. Later, the government in Great Britain announced a ban on the neo-Nazi terror group National Action. Featured in the WPJ Fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on silencing the echoes of Tiananmen, and on the decline of sovereignty in the Arab world by award-winning Beirut-based columnist and commentator Rami Jikouri. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the role of Afro-descendants and the indigenous in Colombia's revised Peace Pact. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.